Tonight being the first Sunday night of the month, it's question and answer night. I've had several of you say that you enjoy question and answer night. I think that's because you like to see me squirm when you ask me some difficult questions. But uh, I do think that it is a great opportunity for us to listen and to learn. I also enjoy being able to put, try to find a scripture to put with a question and answer night. Brother Joe was convinced that tonight's lesson was going to be on the resurrection because of the passage. And I made mention to the fact, you know how hard it is to find a passage every month that has the idea of questions and answers in it. And uh, the passage from Mark 9, verse 10, they questioned among themselves what those things meant. And I think that's a wonderful idea because there are times when God's people really want to know what things mean. They wanted to know about the Lord's promise of his resurrection. Each month I try to remind us of the type of questions that we have, partly because I want you to see where these questions fit, but partly because I expect some of you will be preparing new questions to be able to submit to me, and some of the ones are textual. And what does this passage mean? And you want me to explain a particular passage of scripture and I'm more than glad to do those in fact those are the ones I really like then there are those that are topical and one of those is the one tonight asking a question about the cities of refuge and how they compare and then there are questions that are practical that are asking how do I take the Bible and live a way that God would want me to live and that's one of our questions tonight so we've got two questions tonight and the first question is this, are the sanctuary cities today the same as the cities of refuge in the Old Testament? Sometimes questions can get political. That wasn't the intent, at least from my perspective, but I want to try to answer the question to the best of my ability. When the question was first read, I thought, where did this idea come from? How did you, anybody connect sanctuary cities and cities of refuge? In trying to search for a definition, I went to the Wikipedia article on sanctuary city. And about halfway down through the article, there is a section on history. And it makes reference to the fact that the sanctuary cities grew out of the cities of refuge. And so I'm assuming maybe a person reading through that article or maybe it just came to their mind that there might have been some similarity between the two. Definitions are important. And when you look and try to find a definition for a sanctuary city, I think most of us know what they are, but there was a really good definition and it was referred to in that from The Economist from November the 22nd, 2016, on the question, what are sanctuary cities? And here's what the writer of that article said. There is no specific legal definition for what constitutes a sanctuary jurisdiction. But the term is widely used to refer to American cities, counties, or states that protect undocumented immigrants from deportation by limiting cooperation with federal immigration authorities. 
Some declined to use city or state tax dollars to enforce federal immigration laws. Many prohibit local officials from asking people about their immigration status. So I'm not going to try to elaborate on that. I think most of you know what the sanctuary cities are. But then the question was, are they the same as the cities of refuge of the Old Testament? And in order to understand that, we need to read the Bible and see what is found there. And so Numbers chapter 35, verses 11 through 15 describes the cities of refuge and their purpose. Very simple. In fact, I'd suggest to you it's even more simple than what the other article was given for definition. Then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger. The manslayer, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge. You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, and three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which shall be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, and for the sojourner among them. And anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. Now I tried to make a chart that compared the two. And if you feel that I have somehow misrepresented either one, I feel I'm ready for you to correct me on that. The sanctuary cities were designed to protect violators from federal law. And the reason why I emphasize that is because you can call them undocumented immigrants or you can call them illegal aliens, but the truth is they are here against the law. And they were designed to protect the violators from federal law. The cities of refuge were designed to protect the innocent from the avengers of blood. And when you say innocent, you're trying to talk about what their status would be. So a sanctuary city then protects the guilty where the city of refuge protects the innocent. The sanctuary cities disrespect the law in the sense that they do not want to see the law enforced. Cities of Refuge honors the law in the sense that when a person went there, if they were guilty, they were to die on the basis of the judgment of the congregation. So there is not a thwarting of the law. The sanctuary cities keep violators from facing judgment. Cities of Refuge provides for justice for one as he appears before the judges. So, for instance, if a man was guilty of taking someone else's life, but it was an accident, maybe he was chopping down a tree and an axe head flew off and hit the other person in the head, then he at least could plead his case before the people or the judges in the congregation. Now, someone might say, well, are there any biblical principles that are involved in these? And there are. 
Number one, God had one law for the native born and for the stranger. In Exodus chapter 12, he says, And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as the native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. You see, God did not design a law that said one has to be subject to the law and another one does not. Just one law. Leviticus 18.26 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation nor any stranger who dwells among you. I would emphasize that there is one law and the one law applies equally for everyone. And so it's no more right to take a person who's guilty of murder or guilty of theft or guilty of violating any other law and to harbor them and in doing so you're harboring a fugitive or you're harboring someone away from justice and thereby you yourself become guilty. But I would point out that justice, certainly as the Bible teaches that, we should not mistreat strangers. Exodus 22, verse 21 says, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. God is saying, you once have been in that situation. You treat that person the way you yourself would want to be treated. In fact, if you go through the rest of the Old Testament, and I could produce several passages along this line, strangers were considered in the same category as orphans and widows. That is, they do not have all of the protections, if you will, of someone to plead their case. And so when you go to Jeremiah 22, verse 3, he said, Execute judgment and righteousness, deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. So the vulnerability of people who are strangers in our land, we should be careful about the way that, that we would treat them. Someone says, well, I don't like the idea of deporting people. Well, then I would suggest to you that you seek to change our laws. Rather than trying to do something that would be illegal, my suggestion is, is that you try to work to make sure that the laws would make such legal rather than to do something that is contrary to the law of God. I hope that answered that question. Number two, a matter of practicality. How can a person affair-proof their marriage? So many friends are having trouble. Please be practical. Now, uh, I'm going to tell you this question sort of hurts just a little bit. I tell you why it hurts. It's because people's lives are being affected one of the saddest parts of the job that I do is to meet with families and to see them grieving. It's sad to see them grieve, their parents grieve, their children grieve, their brothers and sisters grieve. 
and to see the whole family sad when an affair takes place. So when someone says, so many friends are having trouble, I think I understand how many of you are feeling with regards to your friends and maybe even your own families. But I will tell you the question is good because the question focuses on prevention. How can we affair-proof our marriage? What can we do to avoid this situation? That's a great idea. The Bible, in fact, emphasizes that good principle. You remember Proverbs chapter 17, verse 14? He says, the beginning of strife is like the releasing of water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. Now, you ask yourself in your own home, what is better to have a good knockdown, drag-out fight and then later come, okay, I'm sorry, you're sorry, or not to have the fuss to start with? Obviously, it's best not to have the fuss to start with. Let me ask you a question. What is better for a person to sin and then come back penitently and say to God, I'm sorry that I've sinned. Here is a sacrifice I offer. Do you remember 1 Samuel when Saul was told to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites? And how Saul said, well, we have all of this to offer And there's a very important statement made there. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. The idea is is that God would rather us not sin than to sin and come and make sacrifice for it. And so a person says, well, how am I going to do that? You know, the question is to be practical. David said in Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. What that means is is that you and I have to take God's word and put it in us so that we can avoid sin and prevent sin from finding any place in our life. So I'm going to try to continue to be practical. I'd like for the young people to think with me for just a minute. Those of you who have not yet married, one of the greatest things you can do is to avoid marrying the wrong person. Now I know that that's hard to talk about now because you find this cute little girl or this handsome guy over here and you say, I just got to have them. Young men and young women, if the person you are considering has slept around with everybody in school, you don't want them. Do you remember Hosea and the heartache that he experienced with Gomer in the book of Hosea? He was to take a wife of whoredom, a wife of harlotry. Was that that her mother was a harlot and she had raised Gomer to be that way? Was it that Gomer herself had been promiscuous from the very beginning? I can tell you what, she was an awful wife. She conceived children by other men. 
she had an affair against Hosea and he grieved and suffered because of it. Do you remember when Ahab chose as a wife Jezebel? Oh, what an awful woman she was. Oh, yeah, she was, she was nice at times to Ahab. Do you remember Naboth's vineyard? He grieved because Naboth wouldn't sell him the vineyard. What did she do? She said, I'll get it for you. You see, the truth is, the person you choose, the person you want to marry, can affect your life 20 years, 30 years in the future. Solomon's wives turned his heart away from the Lord. So I'd encourage you, if you want to affair-proof your marriage, find you a good, solid, faithful person to marry. I want to make a few suggestions uh, because this was asked to be practical. Number one, if you want to affair-proof your marriage, look for ways to avoid temptation. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 says, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. Same context. Verses 10 and 15 of chapter 1. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. My son, do not walk in the pathway with them. Keep your foot from their path. That's the reason why Paul would write Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, flee youthful lust. Make sure that you avoid situations where temptation could be thrust upon you. I suppose all of you think about King David and about at the time when men go out to war and where is David? David's staying in Jerusalem. He's up on the top of his house and he sees Bathsheba bathing. Had he been with his men, that temptation would not have been presented before him. Avoid situations that will place you in a place to be tempted. What that means is men and women ought to avoid situations that puts them together in a private situation, being alone, places where you have no place being. Number two, this may require you to change your friends. This may require you to be around people who have a greater respect for marriage than the friends you currently have. Because there are some people who will say, oh, she did you bad, or he did you wrong, and you ought to find somebody else who loves you and who will reward you and prize you and treasure you. 1 Corinthians 15, says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. That's true. You put yourself in the position of being with people who do not respect the sanctity of marriage and pretty soon you won't have that respect for it. Number three, watch your heart. Solomon would say in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, 
Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. You mean as I think within myself, that's what I'm going to be? What do you let your mind dwell upon? Men, do you pull out your computer or your smartphone and you find yourself looking at videos or pictures or things that are alluring you and tempting you? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, Jesus said, You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have to watch what it is you're seeing, what it is that you're doing to avoid this. Number four, be a faithful Christian. If you want to affair-proof your marriage, you need to be the kind of person who is making it your goal and your intent to be as faithful to God as you possibly can be. In Romans chapter 13, verse 14, Paul would say, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust." Probably at least seven or eight times over the years, I've had someone come to me and say, I'm really struggling with pornography. And I've asked the question to them is, when and where does this struggle come? Well, it comes at this time or that time. And I'd say, what could you be doing differently with that time? Well, I suppose I could, one of the young men that spoke to me was talking about going to class on Wednesdays and during the time we would be meeting in services is one of the times of the temptation. I told him, I said, if you've got that time, you need to be in services. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on the things above and not on the things on the earth. You focus your mind on spiritual things. You will find being a faithful child of God will drive out the desire for other things sinful things you say well is that really going to happen let me give you a, a biblical illustration and then a more modern one Joseph was in Potiphar's house Mrs. Potiphar cast longing eyes after Joseph and Joseph being pushed tempted and tried finally said, how can I do this? Because he didn't want to sin against God. God was at the focus of his life. I'm not going to do this. To the point that he fled. 
I know I've mentioned this at least a couple times in the past. One of my good friends at Freed Hardeman was dating. He and a young lady had gone out and they'd gone to a movie and she started disrobing. They'd gone to a drive-in, which probably wasn't a good idea to start with, but she started disrobing. He thought, how am I going to handle this? The only thing he could think of was start singing, Oh, How I Love Jesus, and did. He said she put her clothes back on. I can imagine. I can visualize that. You know, but what made him think to do that? The faithful Christian. Number five, have a healthy, intimate relationship with your spouse. I'm not going to go into detail, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 2, going all the way through verse 5, talks about the obligation and the responsibility that husbands and wives have to one another. And in fact, God designed the marriage relationship. He says, nevertheless, because of fornication, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And then he begins in verses 3 and 4 to talk about the mutual respect and submission to one another in the marriage bed. And he says in verse 5, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. And the purpose of being that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer that you come back together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The husband and wife relationship should be respected and appreciated. And then when you go to passages like Proverbs chapter 5, he said, drink waters from your own cistern and running waters from your own well. And then he goes on to talk about how one should love their own wife. And you would say in return, the wife would love her own husband. But now the question that was asked, how do you affair-proof your marriage? And I've talked about what a person needs to do themselves. Because the reality is there's only one person in the marriage that I can control. And that's me. And ultimately, despite a person's very best effort trying to be the person that you ought to be, that God wants you to be, you may find that your spouse fails. I can tell you, that's grieving and sad. David did. The truth is, James 1 and verse 14 says, Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust or his own desires and enticed. Your spouse may look at someone else and give in. It doesn't mean that you didn't do everything right, that you didn't live the faithful Christian life. It just means that they gave in. But if you do your job and you do it well, the likelihood is that they will respond in kind and that they will be faithful and true and supportive of you as well. Questions like this reveal some practical concerns that you and I have in our families and also in our society as well. We want to do what God wants us to do and be the kind of people God wants us to be. 
And we always have to resolve that God's word will be our answer. Regardless of whatever situation may come, politically, socially, in our homes, that God's word will always be our answer. And I want to end with a passage from Acts chapter 9 and verse 6. Humble hearts always ask what to do. Now here's Saul. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. If we're humble before the Lord tonight, each of us should look at ourselves and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? And then to go to God's word, just like Paul was to go to the city, and find the answer there. If you're not a Christian, I know exactly what God wants you to do. Because Jesus left instructions to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. You know, we'll sing the song of invitation, and it will be your choice if you want to be a child of God, if you want to have your sins forgiven. And it's also possible tonight that those of us who are walking and striving daily realize that there are some major failures in our lives for which we need to take time to correct. You want us to pray with you for you as a Christian? We'll do that. If you need to come, please come while we stand inside.